welcome to The Great Conversation, where we uh, talk to the, the people of ideas. And by sharing those ideas and those experiences, we have the opportunity to really shape the world, change the world. And today we're going to be talking to a thought leader in the security ecosystem. And his name is Gene Dysinger of Dysinger Consulting. Gene, great to have you on board. Always a pleasure, Ron. Fantastic. You know, Gene, Gene actually was one of our keynote speakers at the last great conversation in Palm Beach, Florida. And, uh, and he had a, a tremendous, um, uh, the attendees there had a, a tremendous respect for the information he shared with us in all his experiences in helping communities and companies and organizations manage their risk and resilience uh, programs. Uh, Gene, you know, that was an outstanding presentation, but a lot of things have happened since Palm Beach, Florida. It has. The world is changing. Um, help me understand as you look out on this world, whether it's the pandemic, the riots, uh, the police shootings, is our world is obviously at an inflection point. Is that inflection point informing and infusing your views of security and, a, and changing your perspective on, on what you would do now for your clients? Wow, what a great place to start. I, I think we should uh, retitle these uh, rather than great conversation as Riffs with Ron, because every time I get talking with you, we just seem to end up in new space and I always am uh, stimulated and challenged by it. So um, I think the place for me where I've got to start is uh, the acknowledgement of the reactions I think many of us around the country are having, and that's of uh, outrage and sadness and helplessness and frustration on so many levels with what we've seen with apparent police brutality and uh, uh, a series of injustices associated with that, uh, again, segments of our communities and those communities' responsivity and reactions to that more recently in the context of all that's been going on the last few months with the coronavirus. And I think that that underlying fear and uncertainty uh, that is part of the uh, the COVID experience is almost certainly fueling uh, what we're seeing around the country, not to in any way diminish the desire for justice that is also part of all of this. You know, uh, it's been quoted a lot recently, and we heard it probably most uh, back during the, the Baltimore riots, but Martin Luther King's quote that the, a riot is the language of the unheard. And I think we are at an inflection point, not only about civil in, injustice, but our underlying systems and foundations don't appear to be serving us very well, whether it's healthcare or government, uh, lack of leadership, lack of consistency, and just the remarkable unknowns with this new disease vector uh, really make for challenging times. And so I think that it is critical that as security leaders, that we do hear the voices and um, and listen to them, and they'll have different meanings for us for different reasons and in different ways, certainly. But I think we're complicit if we don't listen. I think that uh, even as we're outraged by perhaps uh, some of the reactions to the real and perceived injustice, doesn't diminish the importance of the underlying sense of injustice driving 
situation. And those things, while they're at a societal level, uh, they impact, they, they ripple out to organizations um, and sometimes stem from organizations. I think there's gonna be a lot of continuing effects of the cumulative effects of COVID, of uh, the recent civil unrest, um, and the tremendous impact of misinformation and disinformation that impacts on all of that. So I don't know where we start unpacking that, uh, Ron, but for me, I think there are some uh, real times of challenge here for security and uh, organizational leaders, but also some rich opportunities to, uh, to seize things that we perhaps have been slow to grasp. Well, I want to uh, pull on a thread here. Uh, again, given your background, help me unpack this whole idea of listening. So if you were, if, if we have to listen differently, if we have to listen more effectively, what would be your instruction, if you will, your advice to leaders in our profession that would help them do that in a meaningful way, in a contextual way, in a way that actually would help change them and their programs? Well, I think often we listen, but we don't truly hear and understand because we, in the press of the day-to-day -day world, it can be difficult to take the time to understand the nuances and complexity. Uh, we communicate, each of us as individuals, not only by our words, but particularly by our actions. And if you're not looking at that full context of how your workforce is communicating to you about what it's like to work in that organization or what it's like to be part of that organization, then we're not truly hearing and we're not truly listening. And I'll, I'll recognize that that does take time. That takes considerable effort. It does in a business just like it does in a marriage or any other relationship. There's oft times with the people we love the most, we listen, but we never truly hear. And so it, it takes time, it takes commitment, it takes uh, intentionality to do that. And we're in a rush and tumble world, it seems to me, and I'm showing my age here, I'm sure, um, but uh, in the room here electronically with another wizened sage, um, you know, it just seems every day that the world moves faster and faster and the volume of information that is out there makes it all the harder to reflect on, do I really understand what I just heard or witnessed or experienced? So I think we have to be much more intentional about doing that. And that has to be part of the corporate, the business way. And I, I don't think for most of us that it is on a regular basis. And we let the presses of day to day supersede that priority. Well, well said. I, uh, I was reflecting the other day in another conversation we had. Um, I've sat in many boardrooms and also executive management team meetings. And uh, I was, um, I was uh, uh, talking to a next generation leader and I said to what a lot of people don't realize is the main purpose of a CEO is to manage risk and opportunity. And some of, sometimes some of the best opportunities have very strategic and profound risk, but that's, that's their job to manage that. Um, 
And, and so they gather in the room with the executive management team. And what most people don't realize is that's the United Nations. That is, they all speak different languages, right? So back to your rough and tumble world, we've always had the situation where we assume things. We think we know what someone is communicating, but we don't have context in many cases. And those assumptions can kill you, right? Those assumptions can kill you. But in this rough and tumble world, we also have access like never before to data we never could get our hands on in the past. And yet we're still having a hard time completing the picture, aren't we? Yeah. Well, I think cognitive scientists are pretty consistent in telling us that the volume of information available to us and pushed to us and that we seek out is beyond the current capacity of the human mind to absorb, to integrate, and to problem solve effectively with consistently. Um, and our technology is advancing much more rapidly than our human capacity. You know, back in Palm Beach, um, some of the other subject matter experts that were sharing their perspectives were, were talking about this enhanced cognitive ability that would come uh, whether through formula, through experience, uh, et cetera, and it would probably be needed. Not only, I think we were talking about it fairly specifically in the security arena, but it was really going to be necessary to understand all that was going on in the, uh, uh, the security framework. Um, and that's both exciting to me, um, but also a bit daunting um, because while there is a lot of information, there's a tremendous amount of disinformation that is intentionally distorted and misinformation that is accurate, but taken out of context or used in a way different than what it was intended. And yet it's all out there as if it were all equal. Yeah. And, and, and yet let's go back in history. That's always been the case. Sure. It's just the tools have advanced it, have accelerated it and, and made it more if in a sense, real time. Uh, yeah. the, the gift is, is yes, we're going to be able to collect, uh, aggregate, collect information, uh, classify it, categorize it, throw analytics against it, and then the machine's going to do that all for us. Uh, but at some stage, bad actors can use the same methods to cr create a picture that isn't real, and they're Absolutely. doing it today. Absolutely. Yeah, that's you correct. Know, we're seeing that, and I don't mean this in a, in a malicious sense because I have no information that it is, but interpreting what's going on with COVID as uh, infection numbers continue to go up, well, one would expect that they would as more testing becomes available and we can more accurately confirm the individuals who are uh, diagnosable with COVID. But that makes it really hard to make sense out of what those numbers truly mean in terms of our risk, in terms of our societal decision-making and our personal decision-making. What is interesting because, um, you know, if you, study, if you study the Great Depression, a lot of different influences uh, created the context for that period of time, that Great Depression. A lot of political things, a lot of worldwide global events, Let's just go through this. But what was interesting during that time that we all discovered, and I think we've forgotten a little bit, is a lot of it was accelerated by fear, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and the fear accelerated some basic things and probably worsened the conditions. Fear mm -hmm. 
is probably one of the base, if not core, emotions for dysfunctional behavior. Yes. Yeah. So what, 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 what can our leaders do in this industry today to help the CEO and the team create a confidence in the employees so they can function appropriately in the roles that have been assigned to them? What, because at the end of the day, confidence is everything. That's what is the basis, basis of our economy uh, in our, pol, uh, in our, uh, in our uh, civil order. Confidence, not fear, is what needs. What, what can security leaders do to help with that right now? Uh, I think there's a, a few things that we need to keep in mind as uh, metrics, um, particularly if we're looking in the, uh, the context of return to work in, as uh, COVID hopefully is waning um, and hopefully continues to do so and we don't see another major wave of it. As people are coming back into the workforce, organizations are rightly thinking about how do we do that in ways that minimize the risk of infection within the workspace. And so, you know, we just see the office guidelines that came out just the other day, the updated office guidelines. And from a disease prevention standpoint, it makes perfect sense, right? Let's get greater distance between your cubicle and mine. Let's not have them facing each other. So if one of us coughs, it's not uh, right at each other. Um, let's take away some of the amenities that provide opportunities for in, infection and, and transmission. Um, don't encourage people to linger or to socialize in common areas. Um, work from home as much as what you can that meets the business necessities. Makes perfect sense from a disease prevention standpoint. From a business engagement and a human engagement standpoint, there's tremendous risk for depersonalization isolation and alienation yeah fear fear of the other right fear of the other very much so yeah and i i mean we were already seeing that with our reactions you know we're, we're kind of coming out of it but for many I, I was just visiting with a friend the other day and um uh, he suffers from relatively mild to moderate allergies but in the context of what's going on the last several months he'll say you know i walked through the grocery store and I sneeze or I sniffle and people are convinced I've got COVID and, uh, and are frightened by that. And, and understandably so when we've got, you know, over 100,000 people uh, that we have lost and uh, many others impact by, um, by the illness, by economic deprivation, et cetera. And so I think I'm not suggesting that we don't do those things. I'm not an infectious disease expert. Those make common sense practicality to me. I think what's missing though is what else we need to do with those things where the, the job situation uh, requires them of how do we sustain engagement? How do we sustain connection? And as a threat manager, I'm particularly concerned about increased isolation, alienation and distance particularly regarding those who already have unresolved grievances within our organizations or toward our organizations, uh, or develop them because of things that may be beyond the organization's control, the organization may be complicit in as well. But it's, I think it's gonna be harder without active efforts. Um, one, for other employees to notice changes in Ron's behavior that may be disconcerting, because I'm so focused on just not getting sick 
and doing my job. And then secondly, the, the business may be slower to pick up on it and respond to it. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things that help offset that, they don't uh, eliminate that. Uh, I think we've got to not forget the human element in all of this. I mean, we've seen this very powerfully changing context from COVID to civil unrest. In two crowds, both protesting, both profoundly angry at uh, the injustices they perceive and have experienced, very different responses when met with force, which perpetuates a sense of injustice, versus met with compassion and humanity and engagement. And we've seen tremendous de-escalation. And many of our viewers and listeners may not know that in addition to being a psychologist, I was also a, a police officer for many years and retired as a deputy chief. Those tactics were not lost in me. I served in four different riots uh, over my time. Um, and I saw the differential effect of those strategies in how you engaged with crowds, but you've got to do it earlier on or you've lost too much trust and too much ground for it to work. And so I think uh, organizations need to be prepared to, uh, to do that as well, to engage with humanity, compassion, understanding about the fears, about the unknowns, about injustice that is around us, Injustice is part of us. Um, and uh, with that engagement, that connection, the communication, which is not just about giving information to, it is sharing an understanding with, and uh, to our earlier points uh, there. And, you know, I think one of the real struggles regarding COVID, because it is such an, a novel Uh, experience that healthcare professionals really don't know what to expect from it. There's so many inconsistencies in communication about what to do or not to do. Don't wear a mask. Well, wear a mask and et cetera, that people are really confused and lose faith in the institutions and guidance. Mm -hmm. So for organizations to to build as much consistency into that communication as the real-time circumstances allow, understanding that change, I think, is going to be part of this for a while. There's also a breakdown in logic. Let's go back to that scene you just painted for us, where we have come back to work, and we're told to practice social distancing. And if you, um, and if you remember, you said, and we've got to wear masks and stay six feet away from each other because if someone coughs or sneezes, well, we're back to this very simple logic statement why are they sneezing or coughing? Why did they get in the door in the first place, right? So there has to be a different mentality, I think, around health to inspire confidence that this isn't just a mask thing, right? This isn't a just a mask or a social distancing thing. This is a health thing. It's, it's what we've tried to tell people all along. Wash your hands, darn it. Wash your hands. Don't come don't, don't, don't enter the building if you know you're sick. Check your temperature before you come. What, you know, do establish some uh, protocols that uh, take on individual responsibility, which is kind of a founding precept for our country, right? Individual responsibility. We're one of the few countries on earth that actually queue up. We queue up. We stop at traffic lights. We have implied individual responsibility and civility in our actions. This seems to be a breakdown right now in those very simple steps. 
and uh, logic applied to our communities and culture. And maybe that just takes a different proactive response to your point in making sure that happens rather than wait for uh, that inflection point of anger and, and disorder. No, uh, go back to a, a, a phrase that you used at the, uh, the earlier part of our discussion today and in our preparatory discussion a few days ago about the weaponization of uh, coronavirus, because that's in part uh, what you're talking to. And as I responded, uh, my response to you, if you recall, then, so to me, this doesn't seem that much different with other insider threats and how we consider them. Very good, very good. There are those uh, malicious individuals who are ill, know they're ill, or want to be seen as ill to have a detrimental effect on others. Um, reason will do little with them, accountability may. Um, early intervention with the underlying grievances that are fueling that malicious intent will be the more important uh, precursor. The good news is that subgroup is likely to be quite rare. Um, maybe a bit more so with people being willing to threaten or imply the presence of illness to manipulate, to get attention, to to gain advantage where they wouldn't otherwise have it or to avoid responsibility, right? Just like with that, any other false, false reports. Um, but we're, we've already seen some of that and we're going to see uh, more of that as more people return into the workplace. There's another small set of people who will be exploited um, for their potential weakness. They, they don't have the grievance against the organization or its members, but they're co-opted or exhorted by others who do. And you say, you know what, Ron, you're coughing and sniffling a little bit. I know you're supposed to stay home, right? But why don't you just go in? Because having that job is important and keeping that paycheck. And don't let them deprive you of that, That's right? right? And so now it doesn't become about you making the right choice for you and for your coworkers about illness. It becomes, yeah, they'd be treating me unjustly if I don't get my paycheck. I've suffered enough as it is. And you don't really intend harm you're you're being influenced in ways that you may not understand what the end goal is, right? right. It's like when I play chess against a dear friend, he's got a remarkable way of inviting me to make certain moves with certain pieces that I just know I'm getting set up for, but I can't figure out how and why. Yeah. And then the last group are the unintentional. And this is a real challenge regarding COVID uh, all the things you said make perfect sense about personal responsibility. The challenge with COVID beyond many other disease vectors we set, we've seen is the proportion of asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic carriers that don't know that we can take their temperatures all day long and it won't show anything. There won't be coughing, there won't be sniffling, et cetera, but they're infectious and they don't know it. Um, and uh, that's a real challenge here. So, and, and just like another insider threat, those, uh, those kind of naive IT users that bring viruses into the workplace without any malicious intent can still have a pretty destructive effect. So I, again, I, I think security uh, with HR, with any internal health resources that an organization has, big organizations, that's much more likely than smaller organizations, of course. I think they've got to see a shared mission here. This isn't just a health issue. It's not just an HR issue about leave and absenteeism. It's certainly not solely a security issue. 
but everybody has a potential stake uh, in this. And as I think I mentioned, I, I responded to you the other day, an organization can't respond to all three of those um, types of insider threats the same way, or it will be experiences injustice. Because there's a difference in intentionality and malicious effect that if we treat that the same as the unintentional, um, with the same degree of uh, punitiveness, if that were the, the approach, I, I think we'll see a reaction against that that will fuel grievances and is not necessary. Well, this is really interesting. So as the leader of an organization, I would want to hire you, I think, because uh, immediately what I want you to do is help my management team understand both the IQ and the EQ approach to this problem. Mm -hmm. uh, right? Be because there's data, there's response to data, and then there's the massaging of that data so that you deal with the emotional IQ of your, of your culture. And uh, is, is, is that the new role of a, of a, uh, of a organizational threat consultant like yourself now? Is that the new role? Are you going to come in and, and teach them those skill sets? Well, um, I, I have been with many clients, as have colleagues in the field. I mean, that, that's part of it. Um, I, I do think for folks that are in my line of work with threat assessment and management, helping organizations um, identify and understand the nature, the severity, the, the risks associated with different threats that may be posed and how to, to prevent or mitigate those, um, those are the sorts of conversations we should have been having with organizations. I've always taken a holistic approach to my work with organizations. It's not just about the subject of concern. We're concerned with Ron's behavior. I'm always looking for, in addition to Ron's perceived bad behavior, are there systemic organizational environmental issues that cause this, contributed to it, exacerbate it, inhibit effective responses? And that's what I think that we're talking about here. Um, one of my concerns, uh, actually, is that we will be so focused in on COVID is it will lose sight of the rest of the lessons learned around proactive engagement and security and early detection of developing concerns before they become threats. I'm really worried that we'll be so trying to meet the bottom line and adjusting to the whatever this new normal is going to be, that that will be the focus of the C-suite, that will be the focus of HR, and therefore it will largely be the focus of security. And I think that will have significant long -term, longer term consequences for us. What would be the signs if I, uh, uh, that that is indeed happening? What, what would I see take place and what risks would be accentuated from that behavior? Well, what we would see in, is a uh, probably an organization that has always had a crisis-driven approach to decision-making, that the focus is always on the issue du jour rather than developing contingencies and maintaining a holistic, holistic assessment of risk and opportunity uh, that is there. So for me, what is telling is the conversations are, are largely to only about the issue du jour. They're very focused on acute problem solving and not the impact of those potential interventions. So there's not a sense of, well, if we did this, then what? What comes after that? What is the impact of that choice? And uh, which is a, 
uh, in line with what we were talking about before. All these protections against disease um, infection make perfect sense, but they have other effects as well. And so is an organization maintaining some holisticness in that perspective, saying, yes, how does that fit into what we've already put in place to do is we don't reinvent the wheel here um, and that we capitalize on what we already know how to do and to fit this in where it makes sense, develop new processes where it doesn't. Um, I mean, those are those to me would be some of the things that would be indicators of a very isolated perspective, uh, kind of an issue by issue, um, crisis oriented approach versus a, a holistic, holistic longitudinal perspective. So before we go totally back to work, is this the best time if you haven't created that holistic plan? Is this the best time to do it, or are we are we uh, too busy at this point to have such a um, such a goal like that? If not now, when? That's good. if not you, who? Um, life doesn't stop for us. This is we are facing significant challenges right now, and I understand that there are there are resource limitations. That we do we we do need to prioritize but we prioritize with a picture of not just the short-term gains, but the longer-term necessities. Um, we've always had to balance that. And this is uh, the nature of this, the specifics of this rather are different, but the nature of it really is not. Mm. And we'll get through this. Uh, we will find a way. We know if nothing else, that people's tolerance for risk goes up as the risk persists. And uh, if we were, and I, I don't think we will, but if we were to be dealing with the same rates of infection and fatality with COVID three months from now as what we have been for the last month, I think the reality is, is people would accept more risk. I'm not suggesting they should, by the way. I just think that they will. Um, and tolerate more because they can't imagine another way. Life has to go on in some way. We're already seeing that. Right. with the press to open things back up, uh, et cetera. I think we'll see that on a much more vast scale. And right now we really have mixed, it seems to me, we have very mixed impressions about what those decisions for reopening states or businesses have had. In some areas, it doesn't seem to have made, other, made uh, the infection rates worse. In some, it sure has. Well, whether it's caused is a separate question. There's a correlation there. Um, so there's a lot we have to learn yet about this. Um, I think in regard to the other contexts, uh, in regard to the civil unrest, I think a consideration um, has to be of who are we as an organization? What are any injustices that, of uh, which we have been part now or in the past? One of the things that tends to occur as persons or groups without a voice begin to have a voice, they want that voice to be heard across the breadth of injustice, not just a specific one that triggered it. Dr. King again said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I think what we're going to see is after this initial reaction to law enforcement and to government, and abuses of power 
there, eyes are, when that settles down, that's going to turn to the next layer of our community identity. And that's the places we work. It's the places we learn. It's the places that we pray. It's the places where we recreate. And where there are injustices there, I think it's increasingly likely that organizations will be held to task, just like law enforcement and government is being held to task now. Um, my experience has been that some organizations are very good at looking at their current actions and their history to see not just the mistakes they've made in, in the past, but accepting responsibility and engaging to ensure that they don't happen in the future. Other organizations do not like to have those conversations. I think those organizations are gonna be put in a position where they have to have those conversations. And if they don't, it'll be significantly detrimental to them. Mm. You know, someone once told me that if you, if you uh, trace history uh, on a macro scale, and then you uh, apply those lessons learned psychologically to an individual, one thing's for sure, people usually won't change unless they're knocked off the horse. Yeah. They usually won't change. They're set in their behaviors. So essentially what you may be saying right now is maybe this inflection point, that's how we started this conversation. Mm -hmm. Maybe this inflection point should not be seen as a crisis, but an opportunity. I think it's both. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. I, I think there is a crisis to it. I think that recognizing in a crisis in part validates the pain and injustice that has been experienced. Um, I think it's also an opportunity um, to, to engage. Um, my favorite metaphor as a threat manager is we build bridges. We help organizations build bridges between resources, between people to provide paths other than a path to violence. I, I think this is creating, you know, a, a, uh, when a bridge is knocked out, that creates crisis if you need to get across the river. It creates an opportunity to build a better, stronger, more resilient bridge the next time around. Um, and to learn how to cope with not going across the river. I, I think that's where we're at. And I'm, I'm pained, I'm saddened uh, by uh, what we're seeing, not just that we're seeing it now, but the reality of its impact has become all the more uh, apparent. Um, there's a rich opportunity for us to be better as a nation and for organizations to be better if we choose to seize that. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than the advocation of a bridge builder like Eugene. So that, that was outstanding. Help me understand something. Um, as you know, The Great Conversation is a community. We're trying to bring people to the table to share transparently and be bridge builders and helping us understand where we are and where we're going. Who do you think we should be talking to next in The Great Conversation? Uh, I think, uh, and I'm going to uh, fall back on the out that you provided me in our lead up uh, to this. I, I don't have a name in mind, but given what we've just spent uh, 20 or 30 minutes talking about, someone who really understands um, social change and injustice, um, I think that, that increasingly we will be called in organizations to facilitate those conversations um, and to make them great conversations, to steal your 
uh, your perspective. So somebody that understands social injustice and that the application of those issues within an organization is important. I think increasingly uh, to a point that you made very powerfully earlier in our conversation today, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of data. How do we meaningfully make sense out of it? How do we vet the credibility and integrity and applicability of it? Uh, and I know that there are people out there doing that work. Some of them have spoken um, in Palm Beach at the, at the great conversation there. Um, for me, that's a huge issue because I see that information facilitating such bias and distortion of the issues that it's fueling grievance. Great. Social injustice and uh, data integrity. Um, I, I think those are two great categories. So uh, let's keep our eyes and ears open. And uh, if, if you see someone out there that may speak to one or the other, please, please let me know, Gene. I appreciate Will it. Do. Will do. Um, and that concludes this discussion with Gene. Um, you can find other interviews in The Great Conversation at sageconversations.com. And thanks to people like Gene Deisinger, who are building bridges for us in the community. Uh, thank you very much again, Gene. Thanks, Ron. It's always a pleasure.